I really love awkward situations as long as I'm not a part of them. It's, it's not that I want people to be uncomfortable, but it's always interesting to me to see what happens when things aren't predictable. Uh, awkward situations give you a chance to explore possibilities, to rise above the normal or expected. Awkward situations introduce creativity because they strain the normal. If you want to observe awkward, go to any middle school in the country. I mean, at middle school age, most kids are just learning about more complicated human interactions. And they say innocent things that have implications that aren't always so innocent or are more direct than they ought to be. You know, we adults have a tendency to fudge on the truth from time to time to help people avoid being uncomfortable. Or, or we don't ask certain questions in order to avoid embarrassing the person who will have to answer those questions. Tact is a good thing, we would all agree, but tact can quickly become dishonesty and sometimes that dishonesty can hide the truth in very unhealthy ways. Jesus asks some awkward questions from time to time. Back in Mark 3, we read the story about the man who was there in the synagogue on the Sabbath. People are watching to see what Jesus will do. Will he do the work of a doctor and heal on the Sabbath, thereby breaking the law which says no work on the Sabbath? Or will he observe the Sabbath and not heal the man, leaving the man to suffer? This is one of those lose-lose situations. So Jesus just asks the people an awkward question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? In the face of that awkward question, sometimes the best thing to do, maybe in the face of any awkward question, is to just keep your mouth shut. What, what answer did Jesus get to his question in the synagogue? Nada. There was silence. Nobody answered the question. I think Jesus took that to mean that he had the right to turn a lose-lose situation into a win-win situation. Jesus healed the man. Win for the man, win for Jesus, except for the fact that his opponents in that instance go out and begin to plot to kill him. Win, win, lose, maybe. Today, in the passage we're about to read, Jesus is back to his old tricks asking another awkward question. Notice that once again, after he asks the question, there is silence. Maybe because there's no good answer possible, maybe because people with any intelligence just shut up when they don't have a good answer, or maybe guilty people shut up when there's no answer. This is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as recorded by Mark in the ninth chapter, beginning with the 30th verse. Mark 9, verse 30, 
and I'd invite you to stand for the reading of the word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. John said, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us, for truly I tell you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This passage includes Jesus' second prediction, Jesus' second forth telling that he will have to suffer and die, according to Mark. It may be that the issue of who's going to be in charge once Jesus is gone is what is under discussion by the disciples. Some think that's what prompts this discussion they're having. That's a bit hard for me to believe, though, since I don't think the disciples really believe he's going to die yet. I mean, he's only in his early 30s, and the Messiah isn't supposed to die, and they already don't understand, it says back in verse 32, what he means, and they're afraid to ask him about it. So I don't think they've conversed him out of the picture yet. I think they're just confused. I really think this question of who is the greatest among them is better understood as one of the most common questions that humanity talks about. I mean, we are really interested in the pecking order. Who is most influential? Why is one person more important than another or more esteemed than another or more listened to than another? What do I have to do to advance up the social ladder so that I can climb to the top of the pile? I mean, isn't King of the Mountain one of our favorite childhood games? Think about this situation where Jesus and his disciples are. Think about the awkwardness of this situation. Jesus is talking about suffering and death and ultimate humility, and the disciples are talking about their status and position. To be candid, I don't know why Mark has to embarrass the disciples in this way. I mean, he didn't have to tell us the whole backstory, did he? Why can't he just tell us what Jesus said about his suffering and his death? Does he have to 
tell on the disciples by reminding us of how insensitive they were, how clueless they were. I mean, they're seeking status, and the Lord of the universe is talking about humbling himself to the point of death. That is awkward enough. But then Jesus asks them a question. He confronts them in their faces. What are you talking about? Silence. I mean, how do you admit that you are concerned about your personal position when your leader is laying down everything he has for you, including his own life? When your example is Jesus, how do you cling to any kind of status or self-importance? I don't know. Maybe we need to take a good look in the mirror and see how we manage to do it. I mean, we followers of Jesus, if we're honest, we have a tendency to still ask some of the same kinds of questions. We're still concerned with rank or pecking order. We still want to be esteemed and listened to, whether our opinion has a lot of merit or not. We still cultivate prestige and privilege. I, I, I was thinking as I was considering this passage about that play, The Fiddler on the Roof, and Tevye starts singing that song, If I Were a Rich Man, you get to the middle of it and he says, the most important men in town would come to talk to me. They would ask them to advise them, like Solomon the wise men, posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eye. And then he adds this. And it won't make one bit of difference if I answer right or wrong. When you're rich, they think you really know. And I'm thinking about what, what is Tevia singing? I mean, he's singing, he wants wealth so he can have status, so that he can be esteemed, be recognized, be honored. And he doesn't even care whether he has the wisdom to advise or not. He just wants to advise. He wants people to think of him as someone who's wise. And in his mind, wealth is the way to go to get there. We wouldn't be like that, would we? I mean, we're not, we're not seeking position or status or influence just so that we can feel good about ourselves, are we? I mean, that, that doesn't, that's not us. This desire for position, for dominance, for power, for prestige, this is all a part of our fallen nature. It's not God's plan for us or his desire for us. And Jesus, by his teaching right here in this passage, turns on its head all human notions of rank or greatness. Everything gets turned upside down. This is what verse 35 plainly says. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be last of all and the servant of all. That's what it says. That's verse 35. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be last of all 
and servant of all. We don't aspire to position or prominence or greatness in the kingdom of God. We live to bring glory to God. And greatness in the kingdom of God will always be measured by the level of our humility and service. When the ordering is done among the disciples, it will be based on who is serving, not on who is issuing orders. So look around you. See who is serving most. See who is most humble. They are the great ones. So if this principle that Jesus articulates in verse 35 applied to his disciples and applies to us the same, then I think there's a range of questions you have to ask yourself. If you're married, how are you serving your spouse? In most marriages today, the question being asked is, am I getting my needs met? Wrong question. What are you doing to meet your spouse's needs? Jesus has turned this upside down. How are you serving your family? The question isn't only about providing financial resources. Are you really serving your family? How are you serving your community? The question isn't whether this is a good place to live or not. The question is, what are you bringing to the neighborhood to make the neighborhood a better place? How are you serving your church? The question isn't just whether you feel like you're getting fed or not. The question isn't whether you feel like the church is meeting your needs or not. The question is, how are you serving the needs of the people who are in your church? How are you serving? The most important question is, how are you serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? The goal isn't to be in charge or to stand at the top of the heap. The goal is to serve. Humble service is the measure of greatness in the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that that means we should never step into leadership. There are, there are times when accepting the invitation to lead is the best kind of service. You probably know that most people would rather not be in charge of projects or teams or committees because leadership is work and managing is hard and complicated. I read this, um, this address from Major General Clay Buckingham talking about what it means to lead. This is his words. This is completely secular. It reflects an ethic from a generation before ours, I would say, and perhaps makes clear why the call to service is even more important in our day. This is what Major General Buckingham says. When you take command, you should do so with the desire to make your subordinates successful in their jobs. You must be ready to defend their legitimate interests, to share their hardships, to be the first to move forward under fire, the last to go through the chow line, the first to take blame for failure, the last to seek credit for success. 
You must be ready to have the willingness to administer justice with compassion, the willingness to ensure that your people get the proper training, that they have adequate recreation, that their supply is sufficient, that they get proper medical care, that they have the opportunity for additional education, that they are properly sheltered, fed, and bedded down. Three components provide the foundation for successful leadership and command. Integrity, an overriding, integrating belief and trust in Jesus Christ. Mission, accepting our assignment as our Christian vocation and therefore turning in the best performance that we can. Servanthood, accepting command with a vow of poverty, asking only for the opportunity to serve, using our rank only in the performance of our mission,